Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, journalist Rachel Cook talks about her book, Her Brilliant Career, Ten Extraordinary Women of the Fifties. Rachel Cook is a journalist writing for The Observer, where her features and interviews have won several awards. She is also the television critic of The New Statesman. Her first book is Her Brilliant Career, Ten Extraordinary Women of the Fifties, which we're going to be talking about in this interview. So, Rachel, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. Very nice of you to have me. How would you describe this book? What's it about? Well, there are two ways of looking at it. The first way would be that I have given a portrait of the 50s through the lives of 10 different women, and I've tried to capture every aspect of 50s life, from the food to the architecture to the movies to the law. That was definitely something I set out to do. But it is also a feminist book. And what I hope is that, first of all, it reveals that 1963 and feminism didn't just sort of come out Mm -hmm. of nowhere, that the 50s was not this very quiet, repressed, housewifely decade that we're always being told it is Mm -hmm. on the telly and things like Call the Midwife and Mad Men. And also that it will encourage women now, really, because the women in the book... I mean, the subtitle of the book is Ten Extraordinary Women, and they are extraordinary. (laughs) They're almost preposterous. And if they were in a novel, you wouldn't believe in them. Mm -hmm. And what they did was they made careers, ten different careers, at a time when... There were no role models. When women were being told to get back in the kitchen and give the jobs to the men who'd fought the war. And I think that's inspirational because I think a lot of women are having a hard time now. And sometimes it's quite good to sort of look outwards and even backwards and say, well, if they could do it, maybe I can too. They had so much more against them. So you can read it as a social history book Mm -hmm. in the same way that you could read a book by David Kynaston or Mm -hmm. any of those historians. But you can also read it as a sort of manual, inspirational manual. I think, my own view is, that these are our adventure stories and 
they are tales of daring do. Mm-hmm. There are aspects of these lives that are quite rackety. They are pioneers in the bedroom as well as the office. <laughs> I think, hopefully, that they are page turners. Mm-hmm. I went into it thinking that it was going to be a book about not when women started working because we're too late for that, but like pioneering women. Yeah. And actually, in almost every case, there's somebody else or more women around in that milieu that are doing it. So yeah. all the when you're talking about journalists, there are other yeah. prominent journalists that gets yeah. named. We'll talk about Patience Grey later, but of course, you know, there's Elizabeth David. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about how you settled on the ten women that you Ooh. talk about, basically. Why, why those ones? For almost all of them, there's an example of yeah. somebody else doing a similar thing that you could have chosen That's instead. That's right. Nearly always there is. The exceptions would probably be architecture and law. Well, I had the idea for the book, and I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get ten women. That seemed mm-hmm. like a nice round number. And... I had a few names right at the beginning, but I thought it would be hard to find ten names. And in fact, what happened was I found many, many more names, Mm -hmm. and that was really cheering because it meant that my hunch was not more than a hunch Mm -hmm. and that the 50s were more modern and that there were more working women, which is what I wanted. That was kind of my thesis that I wanted to prove. So how I chose them was... They each had to have a completely different career to the other. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to do two gardeners or two architects. So there are ten completely different professions. But the truth is, I'm a journalist. I like gossip. I'm quite prurient. So I wanted them to have racy lives as well. Mm-hmm. And I wanted them to have... For instance, when I had gathered a group of names, I began to... Well, I had to have a beauty pageant mm-hmm. and I had to throw people out. And one of the people that I threw out was Lucian Day, the fabric designer, who, you know, is very famous. Her designs are still in production now. But the truth is, although she was a brilliant career woman, there wasn't much of a story to tell because Mm. she worked with her husband, she was happily married, no one was particularly against her. Mm -hmm. She went to her studio, she designed her fabrics, they were produced. Mm -hmm. I needed a bit more of a, you know, triumph against the odds feel (laughs) than that. And I wanted, I do feel strongly, I think this about, you know, now as well as then, that if you're a pioneer at work, you may also be a pioneer in your private life Mm -hmm. and that the two things are interlinked. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to see how these women managed the whole of their lives, not just the work. I wanted to see if their husbands were supportive, if their husbands were against them, if their fathers encouraged them, how educated they were. And then I wanted to see if they, I had predicted they would all be spinsters. Mm -hmm. Because what we often are told is that anyone who did work in the 50s was a sort of sad little maiden aunt figure, Mm -hmm. you know, in a little tweed skirt who went into an office and she was only there because she couldn't get married. And I wanted to see if they had managed to have relationships. Mm -hmm if they'd had children, and if they had had children, how they were going to bring them up, how they would, it's an awful word, but juggle everything, Mm -hmm. which is what we're all told about now, how they would deal with guilt, if they even had guilt. You know, that's something we can talk about. They didn't really. And that's one way in which they were more liberated than us. And they did none of them are spinsters, are they? No. Uh, Well, um, is there a single spinster in the book? No. No, I don't think there is. I mean, certainly there are plenty of failed marriages and troubled marriages. marriages. But no, there is definitely not any sort of major I think seven of them out of the ten have children. Mm -hmm. 
and you know one of the ones who didn't have children that was definitely a choice mm-hmm. and that you know the more that I looked into their lives I became more and more excited because it seemed to me that all life was there lesbians secret love affairs illegitimate children divorces broken hearts and you're only talking about one of the stories <laughs> <laughs> and I was I was really excited by that because it was the opposite of everything that we are you know we are told about the fifties, mm-hmm. which is just that there's a nice lady in an apron, mm-hmm. she cleans all day long, and just before her husband gets home, she puts on her lipstick. Mm-hmm. And I I did have a beauty pageant. About five, ten people were thrown out. What I tried to do was do a mopping up exercise in my introduction where I just list as many as I can think of who were doing other work. The only disappointment for me was that there's not a scientist in the book. Mm-hmm. And that was for a very, you know, simple reason. There's only really one great woman scientist of the 50s who is of the right age. And that's Rosalind Franklin who mm-hmm. helped to discover DNA. And she's been written about so yeah, an amazing many story, times. but a well-known yeah. story. Yeah. And there's no point doing a story that's already been done well. Mm-hmm. I wanted to bring people back to life who'd been mostly forgotten, and that is the other amazing thing. Mm-hmm. These people in their day were so famous; mm. they were tabloid heroines, many of them. Well, this is and where no one knows who they are this now. This is where I was going to go next because, yeah, some of them were hugely famous at the time. They've sort of lost that, which is an interesting thing in itself. But despite you writing about some people who were really famous at the time, you've also chosen to stay away from actors, film stars, writers. I mean, obviously some of them are writers, but not, you know, literary writers. Why did you do that? Well, I thought that anything that was... I feel that actors and singers, pop stars, Mm -hmm. they're not really representative of working life. Mm -hmm. You're always a bit extraordinary if you're an actress or a pop star or Mm -hmm. whatever. And I decided I definitely wanted to stay away from that because it was about work. Mm -hmm. It was about, you know, working in a male world. And the truth is that women actors are needed in the same way that men actors are. I didn't feel they were representative of the time. Novelists and so on, I felt it's possible to write a book in the corners of life. Mm -hmm. You can do it at home. You don't go to an office. Mm -hmm. So I didn't go for a, a novelist even though there are so many brilliant women novelists from Mm -hmm. the 50s. And again, I did a mopping up exercise. So at the back of the book, there's a list of novels. I've done one for each year of the decade. A list of novels by women, just to say, you know, this is what was going on in a cultural way. What I did in terms of stardom was I went to producers, directors, people who were on the radio or working at newspapers, that kind of stardom, rather than... I didn't want to do, you know, Kay Kendall or Margot Fontaine Mm -hmm. or anyone like that. It's not that kind of book, really. It's a bit more serious than that. That's not to say there's not glamour in it, Mm because there's tons of glamour in it and mink coats and lipstick, because I love all of that, but I didn't want that kind of artifice. I'm James Ward, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. We're going to come back to this in a minute, but before we, we get carried away, I want to just talk about why... I, mean, I know there's obviously a point in history where women start to be more represented in work, but is there another reason why you wanted to write about the 50s? Does that decade appeal to you particularly? Yes, there are two reasons. Well, the first thing is, I think the 50s gets neglected because it's between the war and mm-hmm. the 60s. 
both of which are exciting and to a degree glamorous. And the 50s is just this sepia decade in Mm -hmm. between that people forget about. But the second thing is that I, in terms of my own taste, I love the 50s. I like 50s buildings, I like 50s furniture. And you'll know because you've just been downstairs to have a look. (laughs) I bought a sideboard on eBay and that was really the start of the book I didn't have the idea for the book Mm -hmm. before I bought that sideboard what happened was I bought an Urkel sideboard it was delivered here by a nice man in a van and he told me it had been made in about 1954 and it came to fascinate me this sideboard it wasn't just that I loved it the feel of the wood and the way it looked but I couldn't match it up with the furniture my grandparents had Mm -hmm. I was very close to my grandparents. Both of my grannies had left school at 13. They were delighted to be married. Mm -hmm. They were very proud of their homes. And they ran lovely homes where I was always welcome. But their furniture was what used to be called brown furniture. Mm -hmm. Dark and heavy, crystal knickknacks, anti-macassas, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And this furniture, you know, neither of my grannies would have... They would have been, you know, it would like, be like a spaceship landing mm. in their kitchens. And I began to think, who bought Urkel and G-Plan and all that kind of furniture? Who bought it? And I suppose this is a bit of a sexist rhetorical leap, but I thought, well, it must be, even if the men were paying for it, the women must have been choosing it. And w- what did they want to say about themselves by having this modern furniture which looks to Sweden and the yeah. atomic age. It's the sort of festival of Britain, yes. and the Scandinavian yeah, furniture exactly. scene, yeah. And I was interested in that, what it said. And I suppose at that point in my mind the fifties split in two. There was this brown fifties mm-hmm. and then there was this yellow red groovy fifties. And that was what I was interested in. I just made an assumption which turned out to be right, which was that there were modern women who associated themselves with figures like Le Corbusier, mm-hmm. for instance, and who didn't spend all their time thinking about which pie they should bake mm-hmm. for their husband's tea. That's why it was the 50s, really. It was a sort of taste thing on my part, which sort of trivial beginning. It became this huge, big project in my life. I said I wanted to go back, and you mentioned earlier this idea that the people you were choosing, you didn't want them to be massively famous, too much out of the ordinary, out of ordinary people's experience. However, everyone in this book is lower middle class at the very least, I think, and going and upwards. And, you know, some very bohemian living people. And, you know, working class women have always worked. This idea of women... Suddenly there being a point where women went out to work does not really apply to people that were working in, you know, match factories. So you are talking about a very particular, a wide but a particular group of people. So were you conscious of that when you were Yes, when you were I was. That? I was conscious of that. Although, to be fair, a couple of the women in the book had hard scrabble beginnings there are a couple who are sisters-in-law, mm-hmm. Muriel and Betty Box, and they were both from very poor backgrounds, the sort of world where someone was scrubbing a doorstep mm-hmm. and there wasn't enough money and they put cardboard in their shoes. You're right, though, the others are middle class. There's no-one in the book who's sort of really, really posh. Jaquetta Hawkes, who's an archaeologist, her father was a Cambridge Don, so I suppose that's quite smart. Mm -hmm. Uh, Patience Grey, who's the cook, grew up in a posh house with servants, but ended up actually being very poor herself. 
So the trajectory was lives are muddled, aren't mm-hmm. they? Some people get richer, some people get poorer. But I was aware of what you said. With regard to the 50s specifically, what happened after the war was that a lot of the working class women and lower middle class women who'd been working as part of the war effort in factories and so on, when the war ended, they were completely understandably quite relieved when they were told, now be a housewife, Mm -hmm. the heroes must work, because... Frankly, if you're being shouted at by some foreman in a factory, it's quite nice to be at home making food for your kids. So the women I'm interested in were a bit more privileged. Mm -hmm. They tended to be women who'd had very exciting wars. They'd maybe been in the auxiliary services. Mm -hmm. They'd had adventures. They'd been liberated Mm -hmm. by that. They maybe had worked in a big government ministry or they'd driven officers around London. And they had got a taste for being out in the world Mm -hmm. and when they were told to go back in the kitchen they said actually I'd rather not and it was difficult it was really difficult because the pressure was very great it was an emotional pressure everywhere you looked were men who'd lost their legs or were walking with crutches or whatever and there was this attitude you've nicked their jobs Mm -hmm. and you had to be you had to be tough for all the usual reasons a woman has to be tough if she's working in a male profession but there was an extra kind of toughness needed which was a a refusal to be sentimental about the men who'd won the war Mm -hmm. in inverted commas and to say well I won it too because I was doing fire you know I was a fire protection officer Mm -hmm. or I was an air raid warden or whatever so yeah you're right they were more middle class women and you know occasionally people have complained about that in reviews and so on but it's the nature of the beast And there are already really good books Mm -hmm. about, in a wider sense, the women who worked in the war and about what happened to them afterwards. And I was interested in very specific things, as you've already worked out. (laughs) (laughs) It would be crazy to suggest that, you know, things have not got better since the 50s for women at work, but they're very particular moment we're at in history now austerity Mm. and all that women are particularly badly hit do you think things have risen and then dropped back a bit where we are now yeah I think that's a good question well when I was writing the book definitely I had a feeling quite a strong feeling that we were going backwards in some ways in terms of women and in some ways that connected to austerity and in other ways it connected just in a more cultural way to things like you know slut shaming and kind of over sexualized culture and I felt that very strongly what you said is right it's daft to say that things aren't better in a very broad way but there are specific little things that I think are worse in some ways I just mentioned to you guilt I'm not talking about religious guilt I'm Mm -hmm. talking about the guilt of a woman who leaves her children at Mm -hmm. home or whatever women are lashed continually in in our world you only have to pick up a magazine to be told that you're failing either your thighs are too fat Mm -hmm. or you've neglected your children or you're not giving your husband enough of sexual thrills or whatever you're constantly being told that you don't measure up the great thing for the women in my book was that they came before that particular kind of guilt Mm -hmm. was invented they didn't have because they were the first people to be doing what they were doing they in a way it was a kind of blank slate they could design their own lives they could do what they wanted to do in the 50s if you bought a women's magazine you were probably buying it to get a knitting pattern or a recipe you weren't buying it to be told how useless you were Mm -hmm. the other thing is 
and this is controversial, attitudes to children were very different. There was a lot more of, you go off to boarding school, or you go off to nanny, or you, you know, amuse yourself, let yourself into the house, Mm -hmm. because I'm busy, I'm concentrating, I'm working, I'm doing something important. Mm -hmm. Now, I would argue, and I know I'm on dangerous territory here, particularly since I don't have children myself, I think we perhaps have gone a bit too far in being child-centric. Not all of the women in my book were good mothers, and at literary festivals around Britain, I have had women stand up and furiously denounce the women in my book purely because they didn't feel they were good mothers, mm. which is not something I'm willing to do. I don't want to judge them. I just want to tell their stories. But, but some of them were terrible. Yeah, yeah, mothers. yeah. <laughs> but what I feel is there's a kind of middle ground, and in some ways they were right. It is. I think it's okay to say to your child, actually, I'm doing something that's important to me. I grew up with a mother who was very thwarted, who'd given up work, and she was very unhappy because of that. And I think, in some ways, there's a balance to be struck between being neglected and being with a woman who's thwarted. Do mm-hmm. you see what I mean? Yeah. And I, of course, for my book, I had to interview the children of all these women. Mm-hmm. And what was very interesting about that was a couple of them had obviously, as you say, had a terrible experience and were very unhappy and angry with their mothers. But in the main, the children, as adults, were really fiercely proud. Mm-hmm. They were glad I was doing this book. They were glad I was putting their mums back in the picture. And although at the time they'd felt strange because their mums weren't the same as all the other mums... Mm-hmm. As adults, they could see that their mothers were doing what they needed to do, and they were really pleased about that. And I, like I say, I don't want to judge them either way. I'm just saying perspective is important in life, and sometimes it's nice to have something for you. And these women found something that they wanted to do, that they loved, Mm -hmm. in fact, which they couldn't not do. And that excites me. And... Yeah, they cocked up sometimes, quite badly, but we all do, don't we? We do. (laughs) So just to finish off this part, we talked about how you came to choose the ten women that you write about and how you you described it as a a beauty parade when you were kicking some of them out. Mm. Tell us about a couple that you were saddest to have to leave out. Oh, gosh, that's a good question. I'm very interested in art myself, you know, painting, and I would have liked to have had an artist and there were lots to choose from, you know, from Prunella Clough to... There were all sorts. So I would have liked that. Like I say, I would have loved to have had a scientist. Mm -hmm. I must admit, I went through a a weird period of sort of thinking, shall I do something about Mrs Thatcher? Not because, I mean, she was my idea of hell, but she was sort of loitering in the background. Mm, I think she's the elephant in the room. (laughs) Sorry, Mrs. Thatcher, to describe you as an elephant. Because she was sort of starting out in the 50s and she was forging ahead. Mm -hmm. Whether you hate her or or love her, she's interesting. But again, I thought, well, there are other Thatcher books. Mm -hmm. And as it happened, she died the day I finished writing the book and then Charles Moore wrote his excellent biography and... But I would have liked to have had a politician. And there were some good... There's a very good Labour politician from that era, Bessie Braddock, who was a Liverpool MP. And But, you know, in the end, I was happy with what I got, actually. I was pleased with them because I felt that I'd really gone into a lot of aspects of British life and that if you read the book, you might come away, at the very least, knowing a little bit more about what people did and thought and felt in mm-hmm. the 50s. <laughs> 
You're listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny and I'm talking to Rachel Cook and we're talking about her book, Her Brilliant Career. And Rachel, we're going to start talking about the women. To begin with, briefly, I want to talk about, I'll be remiss not to talk about the one person in the book that I think the majority of listeners to Little Atoms, this may be the only person out of the ten that they have heard of. They will almost certainly have heard of her, and that's Alison Smithson. So, just for those few that don't, tell us who Alison Smithson was, and let's talk about why you chose to include her. Well, Alison Smithson is probably best known now for Robin Hood Gardens, which is an enormous, brutalist council estate just by the Blackwall Tunnel in East London. And it's a controversial building because Tower Hamlets Council would like to pull it down and demolish it, but various annoying people like me we'd like it to be listed (laughs) because we're just perverse but it's unfair that Robin Hood Gardens is the thing with which she's associated Mm -hmm. because she did do some work that I would say is more generally appealing Mm -hmm. and she was a very important architect for the purposes of my book she designed what I regard as one of the first properly modern buildings in Britain, which is a school in Hunstanton in Norfolk, which is listed. Um, You can go and visit it. It's pretty much as it was. It's a little bit of Mies van der Rohe by the seaside. And she won the competition to design it with her husband, Peter Smithson. They had met at Architectural College in Newcastle. He was a little bit older than her, but she decided that he was the one for her. I think she got the hots for him before she even met him. When she was a student, he was off fighting in Burma, and she found some architectural models of his in a cupboard at the university, and they were these strange white Corbusian buildings. She and the other students asked their tutor who had made these models, and they were told Peter Smithson. And I think at that moment she thought, "Mm, I like the sound of him. They got married in a church in London that had been destroyed, more or less, in the Blitz. I was very excited by that because Mm. they were a young, zealous couple who wanted to rebuild Britain, Mm -hmm. which had been so terribly damaged. It seemed so fitting that their wedding was in a church that had been destroyed because they wanted, you know, they were going to be the future. Now, it turned out that they didn't get as many things built as they would have liked and as I say Robin Hood Gardens will forever swing Mm. around their necks like a huge cowbell but the school in Hunstanton and the Economist building in St James which she designed at the end of the 50s they're both brilliant buildings in my view beautiful Mm -hmm. I understand not everyone thinks that but in my view beautiful and they were full of ideas you know what was interesting was that their ideas a lot of architects design modern buildings and then live in a nice Georgian house themselves. They believed in architecture as a way of life and Mm. it extended to every aspect of their life, you know. The food they ate was modern. They ate vine leaves at a time when everyone else was eating spam. They drove, you know, a de chevaux and they shared all the household tasks. They worked absolutely equally. You can't see, when you look at the drawings in the archive, you can't see where... Peter's work begins and Alison's work ends. Mm. In many ways, she was the better draftsman out of the two of them. 
the practice. I mean, this seems like such a minor detail, but the practice was called Alison and yes, Peter Smithson, yes. which was, I mean, they talk about, you talk about in the book, them thinking that actually that probably was a bad idea because yes. it probably lost them a lot of work. I think it did. I think she came to feel that, that if they'd been called Peter Smithson, they would have got more commissions. Of course, she didn't help them. Yes, because <laughs> she's, a, she's an interesting character. She's difficult. She's challenging. She can be rude. She's uncompromising. It was definitely Peter that was the diplomat. If they had a client and the client wasn't happy, he would sort of soothe the client, whereas she would say, well, you know, if you don't like it, tough titty. That was her attitude. And I think I would like to say that that comes from being a woman in a really... I mean, even now architecture is just mostly men. But I have to be honest, I think there's some of that. I think also she was just quite an insecure person and difficult (laughs) but there's a section when I'm talking about her where I describe a house that they built in Watford it's called the Sugden House Mm -hmm. and it's just been listed and it's still the man that commissioned it Derek Sugden still lives in it he's a very famous acoustician now and he's lovely he's a lovely man and I went up there to have a look at it and to snoop round and he gave me a nice lunch and he remembered everything about commissioning the Smithsons When they first came up with the plans, you know, very uncompromising, no windows, arrow slits, you know, all sorts of things that Derek and his wife didn't like. And Alison was all prepared to just storm off, (laughs) and it was Peter who said, we'll have another thing. And, you know, the result is a lovely house. From the outside, it's quite ordinary looking. Inside, it's it's rather beautiful. It all seems to work, and it's open plan. But I think... At the time, it was probably a bit more racy than it is now. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, like I say, Derek made them compromise. He said, we want lots... We thought modern architecture was about light. We want windows, (laughs) you know. But what's interesting about the Sugden House, and this is true of the Economist building, although there's no evidence of this now because the inside has been gutted, but Alison was very good at the finishing. She was very good at the detail, the interiors. Um, She would design things like handles and she knew which light fittings to get. She was very interested in the ritual of the home. You know, where will a person drink their coffee and how will they make it, that kind of thing. Which now, that sounds a banal thing. But Mm -hmm. then, when people didn't even drink coffee, that was a very modern thing. To me, the ultimate Smithson building, which is again something that still exists, is their weekend cottage which was called rather pompously the Solar Pavilion. And it was in um, Wiltshire. And it was basically, well, they called it sometimes the camping box. It was basically a box that had been plonked on top of a wall in the countryside. And it was just glass and concrete and not much else, some wood. And they would say to their friends, would you like to come to the countryside for the weekend? And their friends would say, oh, how lovely, you know, the Smithsons have invited us to the countryside. And then they would get there and it was just hell, you know. The Smithsons believed in bedding rolls rather than beds, so everyone had to sleep on the concrete floors. Alison was a famously bad cook. There wasn't any proper heat, you know, it was very primitive. And, you know, their guests, I imagine, were pretty glad to get home. (laughs) But the point about it was, was that they were feeling their way. They were trying to find new ways of living. They were really interested in the way that a building sits in its environment. They had absorbed all those ideas from Europe. I think they may have got slightly muddled. I think 
if they'd have stuck with the glass and steel of Mies van der Rohe mm. instead of going more towards Le Corbusier, they might have had more success. But one thing you can't say about them is that they didn't have the courage of their convictions. I admire that. David Kynaston, you know, the great historian of the 50s, who really kindly read my manuscript. And he wrote to me and he said, you know, I can't find any mistakes and I really enjoyed it. He said, I just think you were too nice to the Smithsons. Because some people hate them. Mm -hmm. They hate them. They think that they were drivel-spouting theorists who couldn't make nice buildings, that they were just the worst aspects of post-war architecture, the whole streets in the sky project which you know originated with them mm-hmm. and I understand that but there's something really perverse in me that responds to people who have a certain kind of courage especially artistic courage I was surprised somebody that we, we both know we've both interviewed I was surprised in Jonathan Meade's recent brutalism documentary that of course that's the stuff that he loves but he was very very hard and yeah. dismissive of, yeah. of, of them yeah can't bear them can't bear them and I know that Jonathan's read my book and from what I can understand, he thinks I've done as good a job as you can do rehabilitating them. But he still <laughs> thinks they're awful. I, you know, I understand that. But I think that their story is interesting. And the fact that, unlike many of the women in the book, they didn't send their children to boarding school. Their children were state educated. They didn't even have a nanny. They had their, their architectural assistants were expected to do a bit of childcare and they occasionally had a no pair. But the children had to let themselves in when school finished because the practice was at home and they knew not to disturb their parents until 6, 6.30 when the work finished. I, I was interested in that, you know, because that must have been... I can't imagine there were many children that were in that kind of, you know, and who lived in a house full of wacky chairs, mm-hmm. you know, and that kind of stuff. <laughs> I'm Charlotte. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So, for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Higgins, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. I want to talk about one other person that I think is Rose 
Hilbron, yeah. Hilbron, I'm not sure yeah. how you would pronounce yeah. it, who I think, like how I described the book in the first part, is the one person in this book that is a definite trailblazer, somebody that did her whole career is achievement after achievement, first after first after first. At the same time, I also found it the least interesting story because mm. she has the most conventional yes, life. She does true. have a, a happy family life, a nice supportive husband, yes. brings up a child well, there's no difficulties. And so, you know, a lot of the interest in that section is details of the of the interesting cases that she did. I mean, did you... You're obviously well, not going to agree with that. No, but... I, 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 no, I don't disagree with it. I can tell you, if I'm going to be completely honest... Rose is the only person in the book whose family would not cooperate with me. Well, that's interesting. Um, Her daughter was working on a biography of her mother of her own and is a real keeper of the flame, and she wouldn't talk to me. So it was harder. All of the other women, I had extensive access to their diaries, their letters, things they'd written. I also interviewed their children, their Mm -hmm. brothers, anyone who was alive. I couldn't do that with Rose. So I think you've identified, you know, I think that's why it doesn't read in the same way as the other chapters. Mm -hmm. I also think you're right, she did have a more conventional life and the nature of her job you know she was the first woman judge she yeah we was, should probably say yeah, who she is she we? was the first woman QC in Britain she was the first woman judge she was the first woman to defend at a murder trial she was the first woman to sit at the Old Bailey I mean her career was a series mm-hmm. of firsts so the nature of that job meant that she had to be very private in those days if you were a QC you were not allowed to talk to the press so For those two reasons, the lack of cooperation from the family and the fact that she didn't talk to the press, she was harder to get under the skin of and she did have this conventional life with a daughter and a husband and they were, by most accounts, happy. Mm -hmm. But what I think is really interesting about her... Well, there are a couple of cases... There's one case in particular that, as you know, I'm very interested in Mm -hmm. where she gets a woman off a murder charge by saying she couldn't have planned to murder her children because when the fire brigade arrived, she's wearing her rollers. Mm -hmm. And that seemed amazing to me. It seemed to sum up my book. Because on the one hand, a jury will still buy that as a defence, that a woman doesn't want a strange man to see them in their rollers. But on the other hand, the person who's leading that defence, the most important person in the room, in that courtroom on that day, was Rose Halbron, who was more or less a working-class girl from Liverpool. Mm -hmm. So that was extraordinary. But the other thing that fascinated me about her was, of all the women in my book, she was most famous and the tabloids loved her and what struck me very much you asked me before about the way things have got worse for women Mm -hmm. look at the way the daily mail treats women now yeah rose was revered by the tabloids Mm -hmm. and she was loved yes she was a good-looking woman yeah but she was mostly loved because she was clever the daily mirror headline is this the cleverest woman in britain and my god wouldn't it be amazing to see that in a paper now there is there seems to be something like from our perspective something faintly patronising about that attention but they did genuinely seem to be really interested in her not in her sex life not in her private life but in her career and they really sort of got behind her she was celebrated because she could save men and women from Mm -hmm. the drop Mm -hmm. you know hanging was still in so murder trials were followed much more closely than they are now because they had this queasy import someone could be for the noose Mm -hmm. but she was celebrated for her abilities as a lawyer and for her mind and for her charm with a jury and I just loved that I fell in love with that because it's so different from now Mm -hmm. I mean you know 
Cherie Blair for whatever you think of her. No one ever says, well, she's a brilliant lawyer. They just no. say, she's this awful woman who's married to Tony Blair. Mm-hmm. There isn't an equivalent of Rose Harbon. I mean, some people have heard of Helena Kennedy or, mm-hmm. you know, Brenda Hale, but they're not tabloid heroines the way mm-hmm. Rose was. And there is this, I said to you, I want this book to be inspiring for young women. When Rose became the first judge in Britain, she was the recorder of Burnley. And on the morning that she was sworn in, the women and teenage girls of Burnley queued up from seven in the morning so that they could be there Mm -hmm. to see this great thing happen to a woman from Liverpool. And to me, that is... It makes me want to dance, you know. I mean, it just makes me so... I feel sort of retrospectively proud of these... You know, how wonderful. Nowadays, teenage girls are encouraged to go on X Factor or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then women were saying, you could be like Rose. Mm -hmm. And I loved that. So I do, I accept what you mean. But to me, in some ways, she's the greatest heroine because although she would be very disappointed to see how little has changed... You go through the statistics in the book of how mm. many, you know, how many women QCs there are now, mm. how many women judges there are, and it's obviously a lot higher, but it's nowhere near no, high enough. It's pitiful, and mm-hmm. she, I think she would have been shocked. She was a feminist, she would make speeches about pay and the fact that more women needed to be lawyers, and I think she would have predicted that things would have speeded up. And they did a bit, but not much, not enough. We've talked about the two people that, although the book, the book is called Her Brilliant Career, those two people are the people that had professions. You yes, know, they, they yeah. were in the professions. Yeah. They would have gone to an office. Yes, they got worked. qualified. Yeah. Yeah. I think there, there are probably a couple of other people, you know, film producers, journalists, that probably would have gone to an office yeah. to work. But there are a number of people in the book that had careers. As, you know, one of the women that we're not going to have time to talk about is a gardener for instance and I want to talk about Jaquetta Hawkes who was a a, again an immensely famous archaeologist of her time as well so tell us a little bit about her why you chose her well an interesting aspect of post-war life was there was a a craze for for archaeology And when I say a craze, I mean it was a passion. Libraries emptied of their archaeology books. Mm -hmm. Archaeologists became famous. They were on the telly and the radio. And I heard the other day on the Today programme, the Museum of London is asking anyone who saw the excavations at the Temple of Mithras Mm -hmm. to show, to bring their photographs forward for the archive at the University of London. The Temple of Mithras was excavated in the early 50s and the archaeologists opened it for an hour or so each night and the queues I mean there's mm-hmm. a photograph in my book the queues were now I speculate that this passion came from the fact that there were craters everywhere because of the bombs I haven't read that anywhere that was my own I just thought well that must be it people started to think what was in the ground what's down there but it, at any rate there was a, a hunger and a craze for archaeology and Jaquetta was one of these famous archaeologists she was the daughter of a Cambridge Don. He was a scientist. Her parents were encouraging. She was educated properly, unlike most of the women in the book. She went to Cambridge, although she wasn't allowed to take a degree Mm -hmm. because women weren't, but she was very clever. She married another famous archaeologist, Christopher Hawkes, and she wrote a book called A Land, which is a weird book I see it as a sort of prototype Robert McFarlane book. Anyway, it's about the geology and history and landscape of England. It's quite a weird book. And it was a bestseller because of this craze mm-hmm. for 
knowledge about the past and in particular about what the what's in the ground it was hugely admired by everyone from Vita Sackville West to Laurie Lee and it was one of the really important post-war pelican books I mean that's the other thing you know suddenly books Mm -hmm. are cheap and and she became famous but then her career went rather wrong in my view what happened was her marriage was a disaster it was a sexual disaster mainly Mm -hmm. I think and she fell in love with J.B. Priestley. And J.B. Priestley in post-war Britain was like, my God, I mean, it, he was so famous. And he was revered and loved because he'd done these wartime broadcasts. He was already married, of course. They fell in love at a UNESCO conference in Mexico over a pink jelly. And they had this tempestuous relationship. He said that she was icy on the outside and fiery on the inside. She had a very complex sexuality. She was basically, I think, a lesbian. But she got major hots for old J.B. Priestley, mm-hmm. and they had sex everywhere you can think of, even in a box at the theatre. And if you know what J.B. Priestley looks like, it's hard to imagine, because he looks like a sort of alderman, you know, <laughs> e Bayek. And she was very severe, like a sort of statue, and incredibly posh. You know, mm-hmm. you can hear her at the British Library, and she's got that very weird... Oh, I see. Um, And eventually they got divorced and they were married to each other and it was hugely scandalous. It must be something to do with their career as well. I mean, as as an aside, a few months ago, you mentioned the Mithras thing. I I talked to Charlotte Higgins about about her amazing book, Under Another Sky. So we talked at length about the the astonishing Mortimer Wheeler who you mentioned in this book. And I was really pleased to see his wife get a... Like his really long-suffering wife get a brief mention here. But like you you never mentioned the the affair with with Priestley, but that wasn't by any means her first... I think there was an affair with with a woman, but also a guy, a poet who who dropped dead of a brain hemorrhage or something. She had all these desires that she couldn't quite... Articulate. She only articulated them right at the end of her life. You know, when, yeah, when she, she, she writes some terrible yeah. memoir. Yeah, she calls it a novel, but it's clearly a memoir, and it's called A Quest of Love, and it's all basically about her sex life, and it's bizarre. And she was an old lady when she published it. But the trouble was with Priestley that marrying him sort of ended her career mm. because he was very famous. First of all, there was the scandal of their divorce and remarriage, he was very famous. I don't think she could kind of get enough air in that relationship. And they were happy together. And sometimes happiness, unhappiness can sometimes be the engine of a career. And happiness, you know, there's that saying, happiness writes white. Mm-hmm. I think she sort of put her energy into her marriage much more. And she did write more books. She did, you know, she was a public figure. She gave lectures and she was on the radio and so on. But she didn't do any more great work after her land, mm-hmm. in my view. And I think it was because of J.B. Priestley. And that, that in itself is intriguing. And J.B. Priestley, Jaquetta's son wrote to me with his thoughts on the book. And he said, you've been far too hard on my stepfather. I don't think I was hard enough on him. Mm-hmm. J.B. Priestley was a bit of a sexist pig, you know. And he was married to this extraordinary woman. And he didn't... He knew she was extraordinary, and that's why he wanted her. But Mm -hmm. when he got her, he didn't want her to carry on being extraordinary. I think that a lot of men are like that. Mm -hmm. He wanted her to be more of a um, hostess figure, you know, and they had amazing house parties. But anyway, she was a part of this. And Aland has been 
republished recently with an introduction mm-hmm. by Robert McFarlane. And I think if you're going to look at all those new nature writers, she's yeah, which is the thing now. Yeah, that's yeah. very much. She's yeah, she's very and she's much influence. And it's not fair. And the land is a good book. It's a weird book, but it's a good book. listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny and I'm talking to Rachel Cook. We've been talking about her book, Her Brilliant Career, Ten Extraordinary Women of the 50s. And Rachel, I want to devote most of this part to my absolute favourite story in the book. You, you talk about three very different women in the same chapter. Nancy Spain, who was, among other things, a journalist, a detective novelist and a TV and radio personality. Joan Werner Laurie, who was a, a magazine editor, and Sheila Van Dam, who <laughs> incredibly was a, a pilot, a championship rally driver, and a theatre impresario. And well, I'm going to let you <laughs> explain the complicated <laughs> relationship of the three because it's just an incredible story. Their lives are, are very complicatedly intertwined. Yes. Well, this story begins really with Nancy Spain. He was the Stephen Fry of her day. She was a trouser-wearing character, rather butch, deep voice, posh. She had an exciting war, and after the war was over, as you said, she became a journalist and a novelist. She wrote hilarious camp detective books called things like Poison for Teacher, and she was very, very famous. She wrote not just one celebrity memoir, but two about her life. And these books are very interesting because she all the time is coming very close to telling her readers what they probably already secretly knew, which was that she was a lesbian at a time when lesbians didn't really exist. She never actually says it, but she talks about certain you know, special friends that she's mm-hmm. had and so on. Um, Nancy is very much a single woman, but... At a certain point, she falls in love with a woman who has been married, Joan Werner Laurie. And Joan, her husband's a bolter and he's gone. And Joan has one son. And Joan is the editor of She magazine, which in the 50s was a taboo-busting magazine. Mm -hmm. It had features about, you know, breast enlargements and periods and things like that at a time when all the other magazines were just about cooking and knitting. And they met and it was boom immediate fell in love set up home together and at a certain point Nancy became pregnant I'm not going to say how or by whom people should read the book if they want to know that but she became pregnant by someone quite well known why did she become pregnant my guess is she set out to be she wanted to complete the family and she wanted to give Joan another child as it were The extraordinary thing was that in Nancy's circles, everyone knew she was gay. And so you only see what you know. So if a woman you know to be gay, at a time when gay women obviously didn't have babies, you don't notice that they're pregnant. 
So people just didn't realise that she was pregnant. You know, when the story, the truth came out many years later, people were really shocked because she'd managed to keep it from them. The one person who did notice was Cecil Beaton, who'd come to photograph Nancy for the jacket of one of her books. By the time he got there, she was so pregnant that he had to shoot her from above. Anyway, she had her baby boy and she handed him over and the two boys, Nicky and Tom, were brought up as brothers. In Nancy's celebrity memoir, she describes meeting Nicky, the new baby. And she says, the first time I saw him, his head was damp. Well, of course it was. She'd given birth to him. She doesn't tell you that. And the four of them, you know, live in Chelsea and they're very, very famous. You know, in all the newspapers. Anyway, the two women have glamorous lives. They go to the Cannes Film Festival, that kind of thing. And the children are somewhat neglected. Uh, Let's be honest, very neglected. (laughs) One of the boys has an accident in the chemistry lab and he's terribly burnt. And he's in hospital for, I think, six weeks. And neither one of the mothers comes to visit him in that time. They were always off having fun. They knew everyone, you know. <laughs> they knew highfalutin people like Elizabeth Bowen and, you know, novelists like that. But they also knew, you know, the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And one of them was in Nancy has an affair with Marlena Dietrich. Yes. So Nancy amazing. can't... Nancy cannot be faithful. And she has affairs all the time with Marlena Dietrich and then with Jeanette Spanier, who was the directrice of the Balmain Fashion House. Mm -hmm. And so, at this point, Joan, they don't want to split up, but I think Joan wants a companion of her own. She's keen on rally car driving, and she has an affair with a woman called Sheila Van Damme. Now, Sheila Van Damme, in many ways, one of the most extraordinary women out of all ten. Sheila's father ran the Windmill Theatre in Soho, which famously was the theatre that Mm -hmm. never closed where women could pose nude so long as they didn't move. And she loved the windmill. Her father wanted publicity for it, and he he had all sorts of schemes. But he decides that she's going to enter a big rally competition. Rallying was very big in the 50s. And she and her sister have a car with the windmill theatre painted on the side of it. Mm -hmm. Sheila's a very good driver because during the war it was her job to drive officers around London. And... There are no cars on the road because petrol's on the ration, so she really knows how to put her foot down. And they do really well in this rally, and she becomes a a famous rally car driver. She's so good at it, she beats Sterling Moss in a time trial. So she wins cup after cup after cup. Very famous, does her own celebrity memoir. She's on the cover with her goggles and her leather helmet. At a certain point, though, the fear sets in. Rallying's very dangerous. People are killed, not just the drivers, but the the crowds, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's really dangerous, these bendy roads. So she comes back to London and she works for her tyrannical father, Vivian Van Damme, at the window. Her father deserves a book himself. He's an incredible character. I mean, he's beastly to her, like, constantly. Yeah, he's awful. And (laughs) Sheila, you know, does various jobs at a certain point. She takes over at the windmill. Vivian's ill and then he dies. And she takes over and she loves the windmill. In particular, she loves the windmill girls. She runs it as a kind of proto-feminist organisation. They're very well looked after. They have medical care and there's a canteen. And if you talk to them now, the windmill girls, they really, they loved it. Mm. Um, And many of them have not married and they've gone on to do other things with their lives. And it was a great place to be. So Sheila and Joan together Nancy's 
off with Marlena or whoever. Eventually, the three of them move into a house in Clapham. By this time, they're so famous that the Beatles come to their housewarming party. And Sheila becomes the point of solidity and she's the kind of pivot around which the whole household turns. The other two are off doing their glamorous things. Sheila's a bit more homely and she's there and she looks after the boys when they're home from school and that sort of thing. Anyway, as you hinted, this story has a very sad ending. They have a wheeze, which is they're all going to go to the Grand National. Sheila's going to drive up, of course, and Nancy and Joan are going to go in a private plane, drink champagne on the way. Sheila's at the race and she hears on a transistor radio that a plane has gone down in a cabbage field near Aintree and she knows immediately that it's Nancy and Joan and they are both killed in this plane crash. And poor Sheila has to go and identify their bodies and really it's a terrible time. And it's only at this point when the wills, you know, there's a whole problem about the wills because they die together and... Mm -hmm. They haven't sorted all this out. And it's only at that point that the two little boys realise that they are not related at all. Not only do they have different fathers, Nicky finds out that Nancy was his mum and he has to then find out who his father was. There's a whole world of pain opens up. At the beginning I said to you that all the children were very proud of their parents with only one exception and these are the exceptions. Nicky died when I was writing the book in a mental institution. He'd had terrible problems through his life. But his brother, Joan's son, I did interview. When I went to meet him, he sort of lay down and facing away from me like I was his shrink. And I knew at that point, oh my God, you know, I said to him, I'm not qualified to deal with all of this. And he, just for an hour, talked about his mother, his mother's, how difficult they'd been, how especially Joan had been so severe and how selfish they were and all of this and the terrible complexities surrounding their estate and how hard it had been for these two boys to realise they weren't brothers and, and of course there was no one to bring them up either. Nicky ends up living with the headmaster of his school. I mean, it's just a terribly sad story. So they blaze the light and the light is, you know, they are snuffed out dramatically. <laughs> and Sheila, for Sheila, this is terrible. These are her two... Well, Joan is her, you know, I think, lover, and Nancy was her great pal. Mm -hmm. And they were all living together, and they had found a way of managing the world's expectations of them. You know, they were out without mm -hmm. being out. Yeah, I think this is... Let's finish this on a, on a, on a slightly more upbeat note. They do, they are living that life. Yes. At the time, let's not forget when homosexuality is yeah, illegal. Yeah, okay. They live in it... I mean, I guess there's some sort of, you know, they're celebrities... So celebrities are always given a little bit more leverage in, in, in these respects than the normal people. But even so, you know, they, they have, if we brush over the weird arrangement with the children and the paternity thing, and they have found a way to, sort, to sort of live their and, lives. And on the paternity thing, although it's easy to be, because um, it's horrifying for the children, mm -hmm. another part of me understands it because I think Nancy had almost convinced herself that she hadn't given birth mm -hmm. to Nikki. I think she she knew that she couldn't reveal this in public. So the only way she couldn't reveal it was by convincing herself it hadn't happened. And they didn't know they were going to die, to be fair to them. They thought they were going to, you know, live happily ever after. Mm -hmm. I think that they were, you know, it's a kind of pragmatism. You're two gay women 
it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. And, you know, towards the period before Nancy dies, she's getting increasingly nervous of the tabloid culture that she's going to be outed. Mm -hmm. Because she could be macho and so on, but she couldn't be lesbian. That would have affected, you know, presenting Woman's Hour Mm -hmm. and all the things she did. She did get very nervous about it. And, of course, she had this whole kind of lavender engagement with Gilbert Harding, Mm -hmm. who was another famous personality who was gay. You know, she went along with it for the sake of the papers because she was frightened. She knew that there was a line and she knew she could push right up against it but not cross it. So although it is very sad for the boys, in another way, it was a secretive time if you were gay. Mm -hmm. And it just happened to be that their secret had worse consequences than most because there were these children involved. I'm Jonathan Meads and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Final question, just to finish off. Every now and then, in the course of doing these interviews with Little Atoms, I get to interview somebody else who is better known as an interviewer um, <laughs> and can be, can be quite intimidating, but I'm a massive admirer of your work. So I wanted to finish off talking about interviewing, basically. What's your approach? How do you, you know... Oh, what's God. Your, well, one what's your thing, thing I will say is that the years that I spent as a newspaper interviewer mm-hmm. really helped me to do this book. Mm-hmm. My approach to interviewing is very swatty preparation. Um, Glad to hear that. <laughs> it's hard for me in some ways because I'm, I'm someone who wants to be liked. Mm-hmm. And when you're an interviewer, it's not your job to be liked, it's your job to ask questions. Mm-hmm. But I like to be... I suppose I, I, I don't mind if people don't like me, but I want them to at least respect me. So I try to be straight. I do understand that some things are off limits for some people. In my newspaper interviews, not the book, I would say that being a woman and a certain kind of quite smiley woman has been very useful to me, particularly with men, because men underestimate me sometimes. I'm thinking of male politicians in particular. Mm -hmm. And so they think, oh, you know, I thought I was going to get some nice, serious bloke and this goofy girl's turned up. Mm -hmm. And they sometimes make idiots of themselves and I'm just smiling at them but in my head I'm thinking I've got you, I've got you, I've got you Um, and that has happened a few times where people have said things that they shouldn't or they've really, the other thing is people can be incredibly pompous and patronising and I just put all that in the piece the more pompous and patronising someone is, the more I like it because I just think, right, I'm going to tell the world what you're like. We could be talking about the struggle to be taken seriously as a woman journalist in a, in a world filled with, with male interviews. So is that what that technique you've just described? I mean, is that just, I wasn't going to say perhaps hypocritical, is it, is it an inevitable, like a, a trade-off? Do you know what I mean? Is it, is it like, okay, yeah, well, yeah. this is how things are. It's a bit, it's a, yeah, it's a bit mean, shit, but at least like, this is yeah, one can, thing I can get yeah, out of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I do thing, think yeah. that. Behind my book is my own personal experience, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that informs the book is why I wanted to write the book. I feel very sympathetic to women who have careers in quite macho environments because certainly when I started, I joined the Sunday Times newsroom in 1991 when I was 22 and Andrew Neil was the editor of the paper and it was a really, really vile environment for a young woman and I had to grow balls as big as space hoppers in, you know, a matter of days and I feel strongly about being taken seriously and it makes me really cross when I'm not but I suppose the difference is when you're a young woman 
you sort of feel cross all the time. When you're an older woman, you don't feel so cross. And also, you sort of... I sort of just think, when I'm faced with some dickhead man now lecturing me, I just sort of think, oh, here we go. And it all just goes over me in a way. And I, I feel that I can give as good as I get if I need to. But the point is, I, I maybe don't need to. And it mm-hmm. might be more useful to appear conciliatory and diplomatic and, and you're always going to have the, the metaphorical last yes, word yes exactly <laughs> and also I sort of think well I can be good mannered even if they're not I'm really keen on manners I think it's nice to be nice to people mm-hmm. and so even when you know the most last person I interviewed was Tracy Emin she wasn't very nice to me but I just thought well I'm just going to smile through this because two wrongs don't make a right and I don't know I love interviewing people because I'm really nosy and <laughs> But more than that, I really like people. And in the main, I would like to write... People used to say, they don't say it so much now, but they used to say, oh, you can be so bitchy when you're doing an interview, you know. And it's true, I can, but only when I feel it's deserved. And I I would always like to write a nice interview about someone. Most people that I meet, I want to like them and I want them to impress me. And, you know, I want heroes and heroines. So I go in a spirit of being a person who's gregarious and who likes meeting people. And if they then slap me in the face by being a complete, you know, mm-hmm. idiot, then I just think, well, more in sorrow than in anger. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, we just talked about in the last section about a, a magazine editor and, and, you know, Nancy Spain was sort of a, a, a journalist, yes, a bit yeah. of a sort of gossip columnist, really. But there's nobody in here necessarily who, who we could perhaps describe as, as a role model as a journalist. So who, who were your role models as a journalist when you were coming up? Well, I was a Women, ma- obviously, I'm talking about. I was a massive fan of Catherine Whitehorn. Mm-hmm. And she, who is mentioned yeah, in this book. Yeah, she's quoted quote in the beginning. Yeah, mm-hmm. she, is, she sort of agrees with me that the 50s has been forgotten and that was when she was starting out when she left university. And I was a very keen Catherine Whitehorn reader. But beyond that, I'm not sure that I did have that many female role models because I you know growing up in Sheffield I read the papers if there were any women behind the scenes naturally I didn't know who they were and the bylines there just weren't many women writers I wanted to become a journalist because I had a fantasy of investigating I sort of thought journalism was like detection with words Mm. and I was very keen on detectives as a child I used to have a fingerprint kit and things like that and so I didn't go into journalism thinking I'll be like this great woman journalist I went into it more and I have to be honest about this I went into it more thinking that I could be the first woman to do something by the time I got into it there were loads of women so that was ridiculous but as a small girl I liked the idea of a woman who was in charge of a load of men I don't know if you remember a cop series called Juliet Bravo and Juliet Bravo was in Yorkshire where I'm from and it was a woman in charge of a load of men mm-hmm. and all, and I was very struck by that as a girl because all the men called her mom, and I wanted to be called mom. isn't this awful <laughs> see I'm telling you my darkest most egomaniacal secret but it's true my father was pretty sexist my stepfather too you know at school the boys dominated everything and I had this secret fantasy one day I will rule you all you know and of course that turned out to be complete bollocks <laughs> and I never did become the editor of a newspaper and I decided I was more keen on writing and all of that but I think I was more motivated by journalism itself and by wanting to make it in that very tough world than by another woman really 
Having said that, I think women role models are really important. And I think women can make it easier for the person coming up behind them. Mm -hmm. And I don't agree with people who say that women are bad bosses and that women who have made it don't want anyone else to make it. I've Mm -hmm. benefited hugely from women mentors. All of my best editors have been women. You know, all of the people who've helped me most in my career have been women. If I could do the same, I would, you know. I mean, I, I think... it. I think women are a force for good in the workplace in general. That's a, a good point for us to, uh, to finish Get on. Upbeat at the end. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so um, I've been talking to Rachel Cook and we've been talking about her book, Her Brilliant Career, 10 Extraordinary Women of the 50s, which is out now in paperback from Virago. So, Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me well, about thank it. thank you. I think you're a very good interviewer. Well, One I'm, interviewer to another. I managed to get you to <laughs> wheedle out some stuff that you wouldn't want to talk to me about. Thanks so much. Thank you. It was wonderful. It was really good fun. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.